Hello, everybody. This is the A World of Difference podcast, and I am your hostess, Lori Adams-Brown. We are listening to episode three. I want to tell you about Anchor because it's what I use to record these podcasts. Why do I use it? Number one, it's free. Number two, it's simple. I don't have a lot of tech skills, but I don't need to because Anchor does a lot of the work for you. And as you know, many of you who know, I'm a career woman. I do this as a hobby on the side in my free time. And I love my kids and my family, and I don't want it to take more time than it needs to. (laughs) So thank you, Anchor, for that. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And so they also distribute it for you anywhere you hear podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the different ones. You can make money from it if you choose to with no minimum listenership, and it's got everything you need to make the podcast in one place. So I would encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today, I get to introduce you to my mom, Frida Adams. I know many of you listening already know her because she has lots of fans around the world, lots of friends that have worked alongside her, lots of people that she's helped, lots of people that she's mentored, lots of people who poured into her and people that she also poured into. She is just an amazing person. You were in for such a treat today. Um, How could I describe the life of Frida Adams? Well, she's going to describe it for you in just a few minutes. But it just is an introduction. She, wow, she's had a very long career. She's now retired. At least that's what she says. But she still works a lot. (laughs) So we're all really confused whether she's actually retired. But she, uh, she's an RN. She um, has done, I think, kind of every kind of nursing possible. I Um, I think she's been like a school nurse. She worked at Grace International School in North Thailand for a few years. She was um, a nurse in, I think, a jail at one point in a prison. Um, She uh, also, in her years in Venezuela, she worked as a missionary nurse with the International Mission Board for 22 years. And she started a clinic in Valencia, Venezuela that's still going today, even during the hard times there. She, um, you know, honestly, I always feel like she has an unofficial degree in infectious diseases, tropical diseases, I guess we should say, because they're just all the things she learned during those years from other doctors that she worked alongside and um, in the clinic that she ran. And she ran a whole program around Venezuela for volunteers to come in and work as doctors and nurses. She partnered with Baptist Dental Fellowship out of the United States to bring people into Venezuela to work and do free clinics that she organized. And um, and then in her last few years before she retired, she also worked for the New Mexico Border Health, and she was the director there for many years, working alongside the governor, which um, led her into Mexico multiple times a year. She worked, she would take trips into DC. She's got relationships with different senators and different people that she's worked with. Um, Just very passionate about health for people on the border. And um, even now, though she's supposedly retired, has done a lot to organize things with a coalition of different churches and nonprofits that work together to address the needs of immigrants coming across the border, those who are being released out of, um, you know, the cages that they've been held in and, and just addressing the needs, especially now during COVID with food distributions. And wow, she just, she just does 
so many things. I, I'm sure I didn't even cover the half of it. Um, she's actually a, a very talented piano player, and she, she may discuss that as well. But she, when I was little, I remember her teaching piano, but she had an opportunity to choose between um, going to school to study in Nashville to study piano, um, or she ended up choosing to be a nurse instead. Her, I think her quote was something like, I, I love music, but I don't want it to be something I have to rely on for my income. However, she does love nursing, has been paid for that for many years, and then done many unpaid things. She really has just the heart of a nurse at her core, and you'll get to hear a lot about that. Anyway, she's done tons more that I'm sure I didn't cover, <laughs> and you're in for a treat today as you get to listen to her life, her passion, the way she's helping others in hard times even now introducing my mom, Frida Adams. Welcome to the show. Hi, mom. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) How's it going in New Mexico today? It's hot. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. And it's the desert in August, and we broke a record today. I think it was 106. So oh, dang, the, that's really yeah. hot. <laughs> You're really hot. So looking forward to September and my favorite time of year here. It'll be cool and beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's another beautiful day in Silicon Valley. It's a little hot-ish. I think we probably hit about 81 <laughs> Fahrenheit. So, oh wow! I know, right? <laughs> so not complaining. Feels really nice. don't don't hurt yourself. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for agreeing to be on the show today. Um, I just wanted to like let our listeners hear all about your life and the work that you've done for many years. But I really like to kind of start at the beginning because I think that people's backgrounds and the way that they grew up and we all grew up so differently and so uniquely that it kind of forms the story of who we become, even the struggles that we face kind of growing up kind of help mold us into the people we are as adults and the difference we want to make. So just, I, I just wanted to start with saying, what was it like to grow up as Frida Adams? Well, I grew up in a very small rural community in Western Kentucky, a farming community. Um, looking back with adult eyes are very different, of course, than when you're living it as a child. Uh, so very simple a lot of poverty we just didn't know we were poor yeah um yeah just a lot of everybody struggled some more than others um but we pulled together Uh, i look back on it now and realize it was a collective community where everybody took care of each other it's just natural as it could be to share resources if somebody had a need somebody else or many other people would probably be there to meet that need and that still actually goes on today in that community yeah that's nice and yeah. you, you grew up with a in a single parent household because you can tell that part of the story I guess when you look okay at, yeah I, I did um when I was almost six years old my father died I was the only child of my parents and um so that that was a swift change of life in many ways we were um we were actually itinerant. <laughs> my, my dad uh, was a civil engineer and followed construction. Yeah. So he had a little trailer, pulled it behind our car, and we would just go from place to place. And they, he helped build the nuclear plants in Ohio yeah. and Indiana and Kentucky. And so 
you know, we were having a little middle-class life going on there. And um, my dad got cancer from a radiation exposure building the plant. He was dead in two years, which just threw mom and me into poverty. Yeah. So we pulled that little trailer back to Kentucky and parked it in the yard of her brother, my uncle. And there we were. No life insurance, no resources. Um, and it was hard. Yeah. So my mom was the only single mom I knew. I didn't, there were no other single moms in my world. Wow. Yeah. I guess in a farming community like that, that is pretty unusual. I mean, you, we're here in the Silicon Valley and we know lots of single moms. And if you're hearing kind of kids yelling in my neighborhood right now, <laughs> maybe what's going on, I don't know. But yeah. yeah, I think in an urban environment, that's probably more common. But yeah, in a farming community, that must have felt really isolating. Did it, did you feel a lot of shame about that when you were in school and stuff? Did kids tease you or anything? You know, I did not feel shame about it. Um, there were a, a few times when kids would that, that really probably didn't know my story uh, would make remarks about it. You don't have a dad or whatever. But I knew other kids um, that didn't, you know, that their dads had died a few, but their parents, their moms had remarried or whatever. But it never, it never was a shameful thing. It was a sorrowful thing. Okay. But then, so I attribute that to my mom and my family. I mean, there was no shame in it, but it definitely as a child could have um, gone the other way. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's, that's a huge blessing. And I know yeah. that it probably was a real mixed bag. I mean, you said that you'd lived in Indiana for a while and then you lived in Kentucky. And yeah. then I, I do remember like part of your story that you would often talk about is that when you moved to Kentucky, you had a Northern accent and people didn't really like that. So you had to work really hard. Maybe you can tell that story. Okay. So I, when I was, I was born in Kentucky and then when I was three months old, off we went for the adventure of traveling and working. And so I did grow up in uh, Indiana and Ohio. And so I learned to talk there and lived in trailer parks with kids, families from all over the world. So yeah. played neighbor on one side was Japanese on the other side was German. And cool. uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I look back on that. It was amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And so that was the world I lived in playing in it. You know, the moms would, you know, they were stay home moms. And so, um, you know, go to the laundromat and get together and sit out in the yard and we would all play. So of course, growing up in that area I did have a you know a kind of a little Indiana brogue going on there and so <laughs> then that shock of moving back to Kentucky where I just you know I'd lost my dad my world had been turned upside down and every time I opened my mouth they would kids would laugh you know because they had, yeah. they had never heard anybody talk like that so mm. it took me a couple of years really practicing to get the southern accent and I, I must have gotten it really well <laughs> You still got it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been away from there a long time, but it's followed me around the world. Yeah. It's stuck. Once you got it, it's stuck. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Was there a time in your life, in your childhood that you could pinpoint, or maybe it was more of a process for you when you just knew that you wanted your life to count for something where you really just wanted to make a difference? Well, growing up in the environment of people helping people, um, and, uh, when you live on a farm, you just, you're really, really up close, uh, with birth and death and happiness and suffering. And, um, so I guess part of it was a natural out, you know, growing out of that. And my, my, my mom 
was a helper and, and my aunts and uncles, you know, if it so many, we didn't realize what we were doing. It's just what you did. Yeah. I, we didn't look at it as a handout or helping somebody or, you know, it's just that you just, everybody pulled together to survive. And, and, um, but probably when I was about 10 years old, um, my mom was, uh, we went to church and my mom was the missions leader for little, little girls. And, um, the pastor's wife had a friend that was a missionary in Africa and she'd come to visit her during her furlough. And she came and spoke to that little group of girls. And, um, so my community was really small, 150 people and one caution light, only one <laughs> stoplight in the whole county and the whole county has 5,000 people in it. So we're talking. <laughs> So the fact that this lady comes to, you know, to that little church on that little afternoon and spoke to that little group of, of girls, and she told about her work in Africa as a missionary and uh, caring for the children and so many orphans and so much need. And I knew knew right then I went right home and I told my mama, I said, I'm going to do that one day. Hmm. I'm going to do. And so mama took me to the pastor and had me tell the pastor and he, and I remember now mama sitting there. I can't even imagine how scared she was. Yeah. <laughs> that come out of my mouth or how, how, you know, mother never made it. Nobody ever made it seem like a silly little pipe dream of a little country girl. Wow. I always had affirmation, even though that, that looked impossible. Yeah. I remember her saying, I don't know how we're going to do this, but with God's help, will do this. Wow. Such faith. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. And you were how old? Oh, I think probably around 10. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's crazy. Cause you just never had left that whole kind of Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana sort of area. Right. I guess yeah. your, your mom had lived in California for a while. So she probably told you about that, but that was probably as far off as you kind of had any experience in the family until that person from Africa came, I guess, or. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'd heard her stories and of course heard the, the, the men in our family talk about going to war and going to Africa and going to Europe. Yeah. Going to Africa. But those were far off places that you saw pictures about in your history books at school. Yeah. That, yeah. So for me to even think that way, um, you know, was just kind of out of the box because I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I know that you also sort of felt a strong calling to be a nurse and you ultimately went to, you know, school to study that, but you also had this passion for music and you played piano and there was this one moment where you had to make a decision about, was it going to Nashville? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Tell us that story. So music, our family was very, you know, it, music is just part of who we are and has been for generations. And so um, I had studied piano at great sacrifice for my mother, how she, the, to show the value of it is that we were really poor and had a lot of food insecurity that somehow she came up with money to pay for my piano lessons. Wow. From the time I was seven years old mm. all the way through high school. And, um, and I, you know, showed talent. And, um, so I was, we'd have a recital every year and my teacher, uh, had gone to the Vanderbilt, um, university Peabody conservatory of music and graduated from there. And so it was at my junior recital, junior in high school. And I played and, you know, sat down and, um, afterwards the, my music teacher came up to me and told me, um, 
that someone was there from the Peabody Conservatory to hear me. Wow. And I uh, was very impressed. And so later on, uh, early part of my senior year, I was offered a full scholarship, mm. piano scholarship to go there. It was about two and a half, three hours away, um, which, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And that was a, a big honor, a huge honor. And I love to this day, you know, music, I think in, I think in music, mm. I think lyrics is how I think or process. Um, but uh, I had, um, I, I had a fork in the road to make. And I'm not saying that that would, I would have not fulfilled my purpose in life had I gone right. at all. Cause mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't feel that. Yeah. It's just, I don't think honestly, looking back in and I don't think I had the skills at 17 years old. Cause I graduated at 17 Yeah. to, to go. I didn't even have a way to get there. I didn't yeah. have clothes to go. I didn't have any, you know, what had nothing. And I wish a regret. Oh, well, if there are regrets and this, yeah. <laughs> is that even though I've made very good grades, I, I had, you know, I had excellent grades. Yeah. I could have gotten scholar. I could have qualified for a presidential scholarship at the local university and nobody told me. Yeah. Um, I could have had help to do that, but I needed guidance. Right. And I didn't even know what I didn't need. I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so I just really didn't have anybody that came along beside me that had that knowledge and had those resources to at least showed me how that might've been possible, but I made a choice not to go. And I don't, I don't regret that. I mean, I, I love music. It's part of my life that would, you know, I don't, and maybe, you know, God would abuse that and I'd have wound up right where I am now. <laughs> so we don't know, but, um, I was quite young to have to have that fork in the road moment. Yeah, that's true. Well, I do remember you saying at one point that you loved music, but you weren't sure you would have loved it if it, your career and, like salary had to depend on it. And I do right. think those can be two different things. <laughs> right. And that, that's, you know, as I've molded over is only the wisdom of a 17 year old can do. Uh, and that's what I realized that it was my, my, my stress reliever. It was my place, my happy place to go and play the piano. If I was worried or whatever, I could work things out in my head while I played. And that was my joy. Yeah. Music was my joy. And, you know, when my teacher talked to me a little bit about it, about, you know, you're going to have to play eight hours a day and you're going to have, you know, that's all you're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's going to be hard work. And I thought, oh, I had never thought about music as work. My mom's punishment for me when I misbehaved was to tell me I couldn't play the piano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? So right. I, I, I was and maybe, you know, that was a fear that I had that I really just thought, I don't want this to be my work. I don't want this to be my burden. I want this to be my joy. And I guess I was afraid that I would lose that. Yeah. 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 That's true. Well, you did ultimately find a work and a joy, which was becoming a nurse. And, um, and I know that you've done all kinds of nursing. I, I don't know if I could get the list correct, but I remember you being an OB delivery nurse where you got to deliver babies I remember you working, um, of course, at Grace International School as a school nurse, um, kind of slash counselor because people would come in for other reasons in high school and middle school, I think. But yeah. also, then you were work, you worked in a prison for a while as a nurse. Um, am I missing? Oh, you worked in a clinic also in New Mexico for a while. Is that right? I did. And I, I worked in a pediatrician's office uh, also. When we would come home on furlough, I would work in your pediatrician's office and do some extra work in the hospital just to keep my skills up when we come back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
I know that you also just wanted to use your nursing to go overseas and help people in other countries. And so, um, there, you know, there's this point in life where, you know, you and dad were preparing to go overseas together and he was studying in seminary and you were in nursing school and all these things were happening. And then it came to the moment of where you guys moved to Costa Rica and to learn Spanish for a year. So, um, yeah, talk about what that was like when you left the United States and moved to another country for the first time. What were some of those experiences like early on in learning Spanish and another culture? Okay. Well, um, and that move, you know, and that decision, that, that fork in the road was a definitely, you know, a life changer. Um, that didn't come out of a sense of adventure or wanting to, you know, it wasn't, this is exciting to go live some other countries and stuff. I was very much um, a homebody and um, deep family roots and loved, you know, so my idea of a big adventure would have been going to Disney world or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was about it. So the decision to do that wasn't easy, but it was came out of a, again, a deep, deep sense of what I should be doing and what I call a call yeah a call my life that started when I was 10 that started the trajectory of my life yeah decisions being made based on is this going to get me there mm. um and so making that decision and it it wasn't just me and it wasn't just your dad and me it was all of us and yeah we, we had you know that was a process of several years where you're um your dad went overseas to Guatemala, um, worked as, you know, volunteers two weeks out of the year and stuff. And yeah. um, so, and that was just the point of, it was the point of, okay, it's time to, to jump off the diving board. Yeah. Do this. So um, I remember so well, and I don't, you may remember this too, the night before we left and we were staying with my mom. And again, my mom was a single mom. I was her her world, her only dad, child, yeah, grandchildren, yes, and my mom was almost thirty nine when I was born, mm. so um leaving my mother was very, very difficult, yeah, um, and I cried all night long uh the night before we left um the the night before we left, when we ate dinner with her, uh, it was going to be that last meal together, she told me something she had never told me. And that was that when she was pregnant with me and um, again, she was, you know, 38 years old and pregnant and RH yeah. negative before the Rogam shot. So that, and she had, wow. months, she had months twice oh. and rheumatic fever while she was pregnant and the doctors wouldn't even let her buy a crib or anything. They didn't oh. think she would carry me. And she said, she told the Lord if he would give her this child, she would give the child back to him as Hannah did with, yeah. And so, um, yeah. And so, but she didn't ever want to tell me that Right. she wanted my decisions to be based on what I felt like I should do. And she didn't ever want that pressure, you know, yeah. to be on me. And I look back at that 10 year old conversation, you know, realized that, yeah. was, that was what was happening with her at that time. Uh, so knowing, so she told me, you know, this is, I gave you to the Lord before you were born. And as hard as this is, you go. You know, mm. she released me. Wow. But I had a hard time releasing me. Yeah. <laughs> I never was torn whether I should or not. I knew deeply that, that we should go. But it was just hurt. It just hurt to leave her. Yeah. Yeah. And so course. that the separation from family is absolutely the hardest part 
hands down, no, no thinking about it. That's the hardest part of doing something like that. Oh yeah. Totally relate to that in the sense of being separated from family being the hardest part. I don't at all remember that night because I guess I was too young to remember it. Yeah. Um, but I, I do remember your relationship with your mom being very special and, um, and I can't only imagine what it was like to be an only child leaving your mom like that, but what a gift that she gave you to release you because I've known people throughout my life, um, who are, you know, expats moving overseas for even just two years whose parents just give them such grief. Um, and just to think that she was able to release you and your, your feelings were only your own and not one she was putting on to you, which is a true gift. Right. (laughs) I know she was brokenhearted. Of course. Yeah. Um, But she, again, just like she never told me how difficult it was to put meal on a meal on the table and how Mm -hmm. we absolutely ate hand to mouth. And I didn't realize it till we grew up because she never, ever put that on me. Wow. Taught me to be thankful and and excited about what we were having and be surprised by what we had. And (laughs) so it was all an attitude of gratitude that she taught me and seeing Mm -hmm. the good, even when things were really scary. Yeah, that's a true gift because it it just saves you a lot of mental health struggles down the road. (laughs) Right, right. Well, after a year in Costa Rica of learning Spanish, you ultimately moved to Venezuela and spent years there, many, many years. And I just would be curious to know, what are some of your most treasured memories from your life there? The thing that I treasure the most are the friendships relationships that though you know the people we met and the people we lived life with became family uh to us and remain family to this day yeah. I was, yeah. as I was thinking about this conversation we were going to have that we left Venezuela in 2004 so yeah. we've been gone a long time almost as long as we were there not quite but that still remains in my heart that's home yeah um yeah, so when I dream of home, I dream of Venezuela, but it's the friendships and the family-like relationships that we built as we lived life together, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, and talk about that. So what were some of the good, what were some of the bad, what were some of the hard things that you went through? Well, so I'll start the, when we arrived, when we went to language school for a year, and then we... Um, arrived in Venezuela on the 15th of December to an empty house that um, let's just say it needed a lot of work (laughs) (laughs) and we were never living in nice homes you know right you know we were we were missionaries and when your salary goes up when you become a missionary you were poor (laughs) (laughs) so it wasn't that it was just anyway there we were and the language was so different we could not really understand anybody till we had gotten on the plane a few hours before feeling pretty good about our language skills only to realize we couldn't understand anything anybody said. So we had a lot of relearning nothing and two little kids that needed Santa Claus and no way to even get a tree. And, you know, we wound up finding a tree, a plastic tree on the side of the road. Again, getting excited about it. I'm trying to do for you guys what was done to me and all I want to do is cry. (laughs) You guys made um, paper snowflakes out of this <laughs> paper and we decorated that tree with snowflakes uh and I, we found bicycles and bought you bicycles because uh, y'all had, had to give up your bikes to you know in the move and 
and years later, y'all would tell me that that was one of the favorite Christmases you remember. And all I felt <laughs> like was a total failure as a parent. <laughs> and, um, you know, goodness gracious, just felt really alone. And yeah. some people at our church, which our church, we'd only you know, gone there once. Yeah. But there were, there was a family there and they had just gotten back from, from Georgia. They had, um, the husband had been on a scholarship there, an exchange through the government and gone to school and they'd just come back. So they, they were kind of feeling the same way (laughs) and coming back to Venezuela after living several years in Georgia. And they invited us to their home for Christmas Eve. And, um, I just remember being on the verge of tears. I must have been the the worst missionary in the world. (laughs) I was just, you know, I couldn't even pretend, but it was okay. They all just loved us and, and, and they took care of us and just as if we were their own family. And from that moment embraced us yep. and um, taught me, you know, and then in, in several years down the road, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else for Christmas. Yeah. But I always, for several years, I said I was really happy 364 days out of the year, but everybody in Venezuela that knew me knew I was just going to cry on December, December 24th. So, yeah. Yeah. But just that as, as relationships developed and we began to build a life there um, and feel at home there, that changed. But a lot of that was the, on the part of those people who embraced us as foreigners. Yep. And immigrants. Yep. And took us in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't remember that first moment of that happening, but I know that the situation you're talking about went on for years. We, we yeah. spent Christmases with that, with right. like that church family. That really was our family. And those are really special memories for me too. Um, just being embraced by people at a, at a time when we were all celebrating something we had in common, which was Christmas, even though I'm sure the traditions you had from Kentucky and the ones they had were different, but my memories of Christmas are very Venezuelan in that way and that we really felt like family with them and it is such a special thing right I also wanted you to talk about what are some of the most impactful moments for you like when you kind of started this Baptist medical volunteer work and you started a clinic in Valencia and Venezuela what were some of the most impactful parts for you about that okay so um in the in the years the intervening years between 10 years old and the day we got on the plane to go um my my call began got more specific got more defined into a definite call to be a nurse as deep as that call was to to do missions so it was a dual it was you just I could not separate those two things yeah um and so um when when we went through the process with our mission board uh and told him that and then there was a, a call strictly to Venezuela and that was just another kind of couldn't get away from and I didn't know that word what that word was where it was nothing. yeah yeah but in a series of things that are beyond explaining that became both your dad and me and so um I was we, I was told uh well there's no medical work there that you'll be able to do you'll never be able to serve to work as a nurse there and I just remember look and where we're being interviewed okay for our job <laughs> right. so this was you know all of it was on the line and yeah I said, I, I don't know. I'm not doubting what you say. All I know is God has called me to be a nurse and he's called me to Venezuela and he will take care of the rest. 
Yeah. So in the intervening months after we got there and just waiting to see what God was going to do with that, it wound up, um, there was a, a church that had a clinic and it had one for many years, a little church clinic taking care of people. And the pastor heard I was a nurse and called me and asked me if I'd like to come and see it. And I went, I was so excited. My heart was beating out of my chest. And I went down there and, and it, the long story short is that clinic had started when I was 10. Wow. And they, they, they had been, you know, faithfully trying to care for people the best they could and they needed a lot of help, but they were really faithful and had just done. And that clinic operates to this day. And yeah. that was in 1985. So, um, and then 17 or 18 years before that. So they've been at that a long time. So that was such a, a an affirmation to me to know that God had a plan and yeah. he was unfolding at that plan. Um, even when, you know, other people didn't know it yep. was okay. Um, and so it, it was, so the first, uh, the first three years that we were there, I based out of that clinic and, um, developed volunteer work where I brought in up to 150 or more medical and nursing, uh, personnel from, uh, through partnerships with hospitals in the States, uh, yeah. a lot of them out of that Vanderbilt university <laughs> hospital yeah. and, um, did mass uh, clinics to just try to really reach out and meet needs. I had, I grew up in poverty and I saw poverty in, in Kentucky, but I had never got face to face with abject poverty. Yeah. They're different. They're different. Yes. They yeah. Are. yeah. So yeah. Uh, I learned a lot in that clinic and, and, um, I kind of had a, if I'm, you know, my idea was I wouldn't just stay one place that I would work and build something up, teach what I know, which that's such a joke because I learned so much more than I ever taught. So whatever they taught me, I went, and, you know, come on, yeah. go teach these people over here because the need was so great. Uh, and so um, during the first part of our second term, uh, the little church that we were actually attending, they had wanted you know, they'd wanted to do that. This, this church that I had been working at was about the only church that we knew in the area that was trying to do anything in medical and work and human needs. And so we'd had many conversations. A lot of medical students came to the church, many, many cups of coffee and uh, at night and talking in somebody's house and dreaming of, of building a clinic or putting together this kind of work um, and realizing these churches are poor. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So there's no resources for any of that. Yeah. Very few resources, but a lot of dreams. And I think that God gives us big dreams. And they, yeah. yeah. And so um, we wound up um, starting a clinic in this other church and building it and had volunteer construction teams that came down and helped us build. Yeah. So and you worked alongside all these like uh, medical students yeah. who were in the clinic with you and I mean, you know, you were seeing all kinds of things like tropical diseases that I always yep. feel like you have an unofficial degree in that because of all that you saw. Um, but what were, what were some of the uh, more impactful stories about being with those medical students in the clinic and even just kind of what they've evolved into today? So um, I always had one Venezuelan doctor and that's, you know, how I could work. The bad news was they didn't recognize anything after sixth grade that I had studied in, in Venezuela. But the good news is it didn't matter because, yeah. <laughs> because they were grateful to have, have me there to, uh, with the technical knowledge that I might have. Uh, yeah. And so one of the 
gifts that I had to give was that I had technical medical English. Right. And that's something they desperately needed because at the time the medical uh, textbooks were in English and so they did not speak English. They just did not have access, uh, you know, to the latest technologies, to learning. uh, And that was in the days before computers and stuff. So to open the world to medical technical English to a medical student opened the world to them for their career. Yeah. And so that's what, and then also the, their education, they had a hard time getting enough clinical hours. It's always an issue with people. You you know, you can study about something, but you need to practice it. You need to learn your skills. Those are uh, very defined skills. So the opportunity to come work with a Venezuelan doctor and with me and, um, have those ex- that extra opportunity to learn more. They were always um, just eager to do that. So that was kind of the trade-off. And so as they came and as they, I said the bug bit them, you know, it's that once you start really doing something not for pay, but you're doing it because it's just the right thing to do and you you can really make a difference in people's lives and um, it, it, it captures you. And so by the time they came out of school, they would become my doctors. Yeah. And then they would bring more medical students. And so when, those first students are all over the world now. Yeah. Uh, very like Italy. Few, and- yeah. Morocco, uh, Indonesia, many places in the world because of the diaspora of Venezuelans around the world due to uh, very difficult changes uh, right. in Venezuela. So, uh, and I still keep in touch with, a lot of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're still friends and st- I love Facebook and WhatsApp because we can keep up with each other and to hear their stories and see, uh, you know, what, what they're doing and, and how that, what they learned and how to care for people. Um, not for what money you make or not for any prestige, but just because of the blessing you get and give, um, and then teaching others to do that a replicable model. It's been, it's wonderful. I'm at that stage in my life where I can kind of, you know, get to see some of the fruits of that. And, yeah. and now I'm having some of their children who are now adults, you know, contacting me and talking to me about choosing careers and looking at going into medicine and stuff. So that's really sweet that I'm able to, you know, help with that. And, and, and they were babies, little kids growing up with you and, and your brother and yeah. now they're reaching out and, you know, we stay in contact. So that's, it's good. Again, like I said, we still remain family. Yeah. Still family all around the world with yeah. our Venezuelan family. Yeah. So as a nurse, what would you say it's taught you about helping people during hard times and maybe more specifically about those clinic years? Cause I, if I remember correctly, we had a lot of um, immigrants coming in from Colombia at the time. It's now kind of reversed because of the right. situation in Venezuela. But at the time it was Colombians that were coming into Venezuela for a better life. Cause it was right. this model democracy in the eighties and early nineties. Yeah. Um, but they didn't have a chance to get medical care if they didn't have a job and a card from right. their employer. And so you treated right. people for free. So right. what was that like for you to help people during those hard times as a nurse? Um, Nursing is, is unique um, in the way it's a natural bridge into really quick and deep relationship. Um, yeah. Nursing every year is always named most trusted profession. And I'm so, uh, that is humbling. And it also keeps us at a high standard <laughs> to never yeah. use that trust. But, um, you know, you can, 
you you meet someone that you don't know and they may be extremely different than you, but the need is what is the commonality. They have a desperate, a desperate enough, <laughs> desperate enough to let me into their world. Yeah. I'm so different. And they, so it's not just me seeing them as different. It's them seeing me as different. I was, I'm amazed to this day when someone even wants to respond to my hello in that in that situation yeah yeah so, yeah I, I never take any of that for granted but yeah um to um and I guess I'll go back to, to you know to, I'll, I'll just try to describe this in in an, an obstetric situation an OB situation to meet a mother or mother to be in that very stressful moment that very um important moment um and that and then I as I help her I, and the family, I enter into what I call the sacred space. Yeah. Um, birthing and dying are the sacred mm-hmm. spaces. And I just yeah. think people have a right to say who's in it and who's not. True. So to, be, <laughs> to be allowed into the sacred space, hmm. to accompany them, to comfort them to hopefully be a reassurance. And my, you know, my skills are, are life or death skills. Yeah. And so it's all on the line for all of us, but to, yeah. I'm in baby book pictures in all <laughs> countries. Yeah. I'm sure you Cause are. there's pictures taken and stuff, you know? And so when it's beautiful and it's new life and it's intimate and warm and special, it's wonderful. The most wonderful thing in the world. And when it doesn't go well, it's the saddest thing in the world. But they still need that Mm. same level of stepping in, carefully being invited in, caring, and the presence, just presence with people in those moments of life and of death. Yeah, that's so special. It's such a high calling and we are grateful for all the nurses um, all around the world right now yep. that are performing just life and death yep. moments, sacred moments of people. And that's just, yep. it's a good reminder that um, it is such a special calling and it's a special part of our society. And, and we're so grateful for all the nurses like you that, that step in there when it's helping in hard times for sure right now. So there's this moment in Venezuela where you, um, you and dad, and then Chad, my younger brother, ended up moving to North Thailand, and you started working as a school nurse at Grace International School for a few years, yeah. and I'm sure that was a huge culture change from Venezuela to Thailand, um, and then that job was kind of a different one, right? Mm-hmm. So what was that experience like for you of being in North Thailand and working at Grace? Well, culture shock isn't just when you leave the States and go to another country, <laughs> right. okay, and it's it can, um, it'll be just for me anyway, it's been distinct in each place I've gone, but I think probably, well, the worst culture shock I think I've ever been is coming back from Thailand to here to the United (laughs) States. That was right. The second, second worst culture shock was going from Venezuela to Thailand. And I love Thailand. So it's not, it's not right. It's just, (laughs) I had, I guess maybe because I worked so hard and so long to get fluent in Spanish and to build those deep relationships and we had very deep roots in Venezuela and we knew we needed to leave. We, yeah. we knew that, uh, for, you know, not that they were running us off. It's just, we, it came to the point politically where our presence was pre- 
putting people we were working with in danger. So that's time right. ago. And so yeah. we knew definitely, and we felt very confident that God wanted us in Thailand, but it's just the vast difference of, you know, of the two cultures and then not having a word of Thai, didn't know yeah. anything. And I've, I've said, if I lived there a thousand years, I still would not be able to understand. That's such a rich, deep, ancient culture with the levels of, you know, language and respect. And there's all these rules and, in and, and shadows and shades of culture. It's beautiful. Yes. It's rich. It's lovely, but even, um, personal space. And that's probably, that's probably a good illustration, you know, in, in, uh, moving from the U S where it's about 36 inches personal space. And in other words, somebody gets closer than 36 inches to you. Now it's six feet, but normally it was 36 <laughs> right. inches. And then you begin to get uncomfortable just a little bit. You might need to back up. So that space for, um, for Venezuelan is about 18 inches. So getting used to that closer <laughs> you know, yeah. with me and I didn't realize how much, Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. That's my dog. Okay. I didn't realize. I've how got much, neighbor kids. You've well, got a dog. <laughs> you got kids. I got dogs. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize how, um, I, I guess I just wasn't prepared for that, but I remember really feeling alone. And even though there were, you know, people, teachers from the school and all of that, but just feeling, I just felt I couldn't, people were unapproachable you know yeah. they don't look you in the eye and you know right. eye contact so important in our culture and that was a commonality with uh, the Venezuelan culture um and I remember one day it'd been about maybe three or four months after we got there and I was downtown in the market and I walked out of a coffee shop and there stood two people that I'd known in Venezuela Oh, wow. And I didn't have a clue they were coming and they were actually North Americans, but we had lived together there and we just threw our arms around each other. She was probably feeling the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) And I, and we just hugged in the street. Well, boy, that, you know, people didn't know what on earth was going on because they're like formal culture. Yeah. Yeah. And it was all okay. I just didn't care if I broke every cultural rule in the world. I just needed (laughs) that so badly. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, we were there four years and, um, we, I was, you know, in an international school. It was uh, English language school. 28 nations represented in that school, and a third of the student population was Korean. Yeah. Uh, so trying to learn Thai, other than for my own benefit, would really not have been, um, I, that would not have been the best use of my time. If I was going to have learned another language, I would have learned Korean because um, the mother's, traditionally they stayed home and the fathers traveled all through Asia and the children would come to our school and the mothers didn't speak Thai and they didn't speak English. They only spoke Korean. So to try to talk to a mother about her sick child was difficult. And then there's so many rules about who can translate and it, Mm. you know, not, not be offensive. So it's just a very complex society and stuff. So that was, um, you know, I loved living there. We're comfortable living there, but that part probably never got comfortable with it. Just, we managed. And then to, um, until that time I had worked, you know, growing up in Kentucky, mostly rural Kentucky and a lot of poor people. And then I saw poverty at you know, a level I'd never seen. And I worked with desperate starved death poverty, you know, yeah. as well for so long for like 20 years and then come to work in a school, which that was not the issue. This was a private school and these parents were paying tuition for their kids. Right. 
So that it was not, although those parents were running orphanages and working with the poor, the kids themselves were not. But what I was needed just as badly. Yeah. Because um, the, the, about half the kids dormed there and their parents lived, you know, 1,500 miles away or 1,000 miles away, several countries away. And the kids would be in dorm situations. So they were really missing home. Uh, these were the years after 9-11 when there was a lot of turmoil in, in Asia. Yeah. Um, I remember one day doing lice checks. If you're a school nurse, you do lice checks, especially yeah. if you're in the tropics. So I walked in the classroom and I just had the kids sit at the desk and I would just, you know, go behind, get behind them and run my thumb up their hair. And as I did that in a little second grade class, this little second grade boy, and I run my thumb up his hair. I saw scars, scars, scars all in his scalp. Aww. And I looked, then I looked to his face and they had been in a bombing, in a church bombing and his mother had nearly been killed. And wow. yeah, a lot of people were killed. The children survived, but that was the scars from the wounds. And so trauma, a lot of trauma. So the kids that would come to school there had lived through trauma of war uh there was a whole school that evacuated from pakistan and came in and those kids they were attacked by terrorists and they had their teachers brought them two weeks over the mountains kind of like sound of music you know going over the yeah. mountains where they can't went over the mountains in pakistan and got out and they all wound up coming to to thailand to go to school so tremendous tremendous trauma yeah uh, and so they needed me a lot of the you know children somaticized trauma and somaticized stress. So the tummy ache, you know, it's many times an emotional pain that's right. That's displaying in, in physical pain. So really learning and getting to know those kids and how to listen um, and just hug sometimes, you know, and just let them cry. Well, I mean, I, I remember you telling me those stories. Um, and then after you left Thailand, even my years in Singapore, I would have run into people from that school in North Thailand on occasion. And I always got people asking me to put in a word for you to come back <laughs> because I think you really were more than just a school nurse. You really were like the counselor. Like you said, those tummy aches and headaches were often more than just that. And you got a chance to be in that sacred space with a lot of students who have gone through a lot of traumatic events in their lives. And that's just really special. I know a lot of those kids are grown and married and out of college now. And, um, and you played such an important role in their lives, but you did ultimately leave Thailand and you yeah. moved to New Mexico and you worked in a clinic for a few years. And then after that, you became uh, involved in the border health. So um, I'd love for you to talk about what your job was and, and what you did during those years and what that meant for you. Okay, um, so the irony of all ironies was me ever working for the government, any government. Yeah. It's <laughs> just not on my bucket list. Right. I've collaborated with, you know, everywhere I've been, I would always work with the public health officials, get, you know, work tandem, in tandem with them, try to help them meet their goals. I never tried to go in and, and make my own plan in other countries, I think, you know. That's why the relationships could be so deep as I was, I've tried to help them and amplify their work and never to uh, overtake it. Uh, and like I said, I was the, the learner, not necessarily the teacher, but uh, so, but coming here and it just dropped in my lap. Um, 
and I was kind of stunned for the first year that it even happened. But so I would, I became the director of the New Mexico office of border health uh, for, I'm pretty sure well, your California audience may or may not know this since they're not in Southern California, but every state along the U S border, which there are four all have an office of border health and yeah. they're within that 100 kilometer, um, space between the, U- the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, north of the border. And then there's on the south side of the border, there are six Mexican states, and they all have one. And all 10 of those states form the U.S.-Mexico Border Health Commission. Uh, it was actually signed by a law, signed into law. Uh, it's um, working by nationally. It was set up for uh, working on uh, environmental concerns, but became much more than that. So, um the border is unique. Uh, it's a unique culture. It, it's its own culture. And the, the premise behind even setting this up is that in that 100 kilometer space north and south of the, the geopolitical line that separates two countries, even though you go in 1500 miles from California to Texas uh, in two countries, 10 states, that that little band has more in common in many ways than the it, any of those places have with the rest of their state or the rest of their country. It is unique. A lot of crossing back and forth cultures inter, you know, not just interact, but cultures are, it's kind of one culture. They, they love saying somos un pueblo, un solo pueblo, which means we're only one people. Uh, so they share common health concerns, including, you know, maybe genetic things, um, diseases, the prevalence of diseases can be very different. Very, and so if you're not pulling out the border and looking at the border specifically and you're just looking at the whole state's numbers, you will miss something really, really important. Hmm. Poverty level is so much higher, um, tuberculosis. But then the, there's, there's some positive distinctions in there too in that the suicide right. rates are much lower. Wow. And so you want to look at things like that. You want to look at why is that? Because they're, they are poor. They do struggle a lot, you know, homelessness, um, food insecurity, job insecurity, lack of education, many times not running water, you know, yeah. all these tough stuff. Right. But yet, what is it? What is it that that's different? That means their suicide rates are less. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of research, a lot of, lot of, um, looking at, at, at things like that so that we can learn, learn from that and also address um, key common public health concerns. So my job on the border was to be the eyes and ears for the Secretary of Health and for the governor because they're in Santa Fe, they're four hours away, and life is really busy. And if you're not paying attention and not here, you're going to miss that. So, yeah. um so that's basically what I did. Said we're I was part of the Department of Health, and so we did a lot of outreach, training, trying to build capacity for community health workers, uh, take education, try to help with access to care, um, all those things to try to address some of those issues. Yeah, that, that's so cool. It's so fascinating. It's just such a unique thing, and it was such an incredible experience for you to be able to be involved with. I know that during those years, you... Um, I mean, you were able to have just like a lot of really cool experiences of meeting people, um, even in Mexico, different counterparts. I know that you've been friends with since that time. And you actually even 
were called on the phone, I guess, by President Obama and even Vice President Joe Biden at the time and yeah. just um, got to go to Washington, D.C. for different things. And you've interacted with different senators. So mm-hmm. I know right now it's such a weird time and it's such a bizarre moment that we're, we're facing. I, I would be curious to know because, you know, a lot of Christians in the United States, especially I would say particularly white evangelicals, um, like to keep politics out of their Christianity and politics, even in the American um, word that we use, the English word politics, when you say it in America, it has such a kind of icky feel to it, especially yeah. um, for a lot of Christians. Um, but as far as like, you know, your understanding of working with the government and being a Christian, because at, in the church, it's made up of people who follow Jesus, but there are people who follow Jesus who work in the U.S. government as well. We have a separation of church and state, um, but it doesn't mean I don't think necessarily that Christians have to not be involved in politics. Politics in the sense that some things you just can't do alone or you can't do as one church. So what is your, um, after all those years of working in that job and, you know, being, you know, on calls with the president and vice president, working with senators, as a Christian, like, how would you describe why that was important to do? Um, I think we have to be salt and light. And you can't be salt and stay in the salt shaker up in the cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you, you know, so being in involved, being in the world, being in uh, in situations and um that, you know, the commonality is churches traditionally have been, uh, in, you know, want to help people, want to improve people's lives. I mean, that's what we do, you know, this life and the life to come. Yeah. Um, and that's government's responsibility, too. Yeah. So um, finding ways to work, it, I t- you know, and, and I learned a lot, too, you know. I grew up in the sixties, you know, we yeah. didn't, we didn't trust anybody. <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of disappointment, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of really bad things happened during those times. And so, yeah. uh, but my, my, um, my surprise and joy was finding over and over great Christians who were choosing to live out their call mm through government service. And, you know, I remember when I first came back from my first meeting is I had to go to Santa Fe and uh, Santa Fe is the capital of New Mexico folks. And <laughs> <laughs> so um, I went and I came back to my husband. I said, I found them. I found them. They're all in public health. You know, mm. well, many of them have gravitated to service in those kind of areas. So it wasn't just public health. It was all kinds of different areas. And wherever I went, whether it was in Mexico or whether it was in Washington, um, you know, I, and I've been so blessed to have an have time because I made my I've made my mind up a long time ago. You know, I don't I don't go around preaching to people. I don't do that. It, my, I hope my life is my sermon. But yeah. I will I will um, not I will not deny who I'm serving. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so and those if those conversations come up uh, and they do frequently. Yeah. Uh, if you're open, they'll happen. Uh, and sitting, you know, sitting at the table with a governor or sitting at a table with the secretary of health or sitting with high level officials, high level officials in both countries. Yeah. And having them there were on WhatsApp, you know, and having them share prayer requests with me. Mm. I mean, the, my Mexican, precious Mexican public health friends, 
they have lived right you know they have lived in constant danger yeah through their work mm-hmm. and I had them tell me some horrific stories of what they've lived yeah. um, and so but to have them text me or um, see me and pull me to the corner to share and whisper prayer requests that they have and things that they've endured and things and so um, but to see them again we you just find people who love the Lord in the oddest places (laughs) right (laughs) yeah but that's been really my blessing that we could be encouragement to one another so um, you know I do think people who have uh, faith have faith people of faith need to be involved because yeah. um, I'm going to tell you right now, there's not enough money that would have ever paid me. You could have paid me a million dollars a year and I would not have stayed in Venezuela and, and left my family back, yeah. left my mama for money. Nope. No, there's not enough money, but my call kept me there and made me joyful there. And everywhere yeah. I've been in every situation to find joy because of being able to serve people. That's the highest honor is to serve people and knowing that when I do that, because Matthew 25 is really clear about this, that when Mm. you have touched the face of a person, you have touched the face of Christ himself. That's my Mm. Teresa, which is one of my heroes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so when I began to realize that when I'm looking into someone's face, when I'm looking at that child or I'm looking at that anguished mother or that terrified father or, or whoever it is, that's a picture of Christ, the suffering Christ. And if I can see that person with that value and with that uh, perspective, it's going to change who I am. It's going to change how I respond to that person. And so we should be out there because we value people. We should be valuing people more than anybody. Yeah, of course. Yes. People of faith have a message that goes deeper than just the physical need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, you know, in those dark moments of my life, when I, you know, have that dark searching of the soul and look, is this all there is, Lord? Is this it? Do we just vaporize and go away to nothing when this life is over? If this is all there is, it's not worth it. Right. But then that deep sense of presence of knowing, no, honey, this isn't all there is. Yeah. So those of us who have faith and know that, that there's more than this life, we have, should have even a more urgency to be caring for people and just be the presence of Christ for someone else. Yeah. Well, you have certainly shown that to so many people and you're supposedly retired, but (laughs) you're so busy (laughs) doing other things. So I'd love for you to share with all of us what you're doing in retirement, which (laughs) is a lot of important stuff with um, immigrants on the border and, and, Booting, feeding people. And so, yeah, just describe what you're involved in now. Okay. So I'll back up to the fall of 2018. I'm busy and loving my job. Loved that border health job. Loved that border health job. Okay. So, yeah. And (laughs) if y'all will remember what was happening, I'm in a company. Children started coming over right after I started work in 2016. And so the growing number of asylum seekers that were coming across the border. And I was trying to, part of my job was to kind of help the church shelter, see what's going on, let the governor know what's happening. And so just being involved in that. And then it came to the point where I thought, well, I can do this at night 
<laughs> I think it'd be my night thing and realizing yeah. and realizing that this, this was growing need. And it, I had the unique skills here to maneuver in this yeah. because of my experience and just, you know, I remember clearly heading out to work, heading out from work at five o'clock from the door and God just said, you're spending all your time on things you can't change and you need to spend all your time on what you can change. And I knew right then I needed to quit my job. So I quit my job. <laughs> that you left. I left. But the nice thing about it is I still work with all the same people. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I wound up the state of New Mexico working with me and gave me a mobile medical unit and sent me doctors. And to this day, I'm still working with them. So I, I got into it because of the need of just vast numbers of people coming, which led to between March and September of 2019, last year, Las Cruces received over 17,000 um, asylum seekers into Las Cruces to house, care for, and get them a bus ticket and get them to their sponsors. So heavy responsibility. These people were all but dead, many of them, from dehydration, exposure, and exhaustion, and came, you know, really uh, desperate need. So um, just, and so, and then after the government policies changed and that remain in Mexico or the migrant protection protocols came into being, then, then they were stopped from coming over. Well, they didn't stop them from coming up. They're running from violence and cartel violence and they're coming, but they're yeah. being stopped. So the South side of the border over in Mexico with all my friends on that side of the border had a problem on their hands. And so yeah. now I'm helping the same people. I'm just helping them over there. So on the other side of the border, the yeah. the border has, has churches and schools and other nonprofits have set up shelters and just trying to resource for them, send them, you know, uh, that people, I just know people and they just help me. <laughs> That's all I yeah. And the resources <laughs> just come. I don't have anything. I don't have any money. I don't have anything, I, but it just comes. And um, coordinating different churches here, we, you know, we started meeting together just to coordinate airplane run or airport runs and now we meet every Wednesday and um, since the COVID situation um, I have been involved in food distribution through the CARES Act uh, and that's that federal act that was to provide money for people during this time and so yeah. buying the farmers crops in the field um, and then uh, boxing them and so I get a trailer truck every when every Tuesday afternoon and um, I'll get about 45 or 50,000 pounds of food, about 1,700 boxes or more. And then we share that out, uh, that in bulk on Tuesday afternoon to churches and schools and nonprofits that will go out into their communities and share that with them. Then on Wednesdays, our church also is one of those recipients. So on Wednesdays, we're giving to families and we'll give two to 400 boxes of food just to people in the community. People are hungry. This is not new for here. I've already described the border. New Mexico yeah. is, uh, is the number one in food insecurity in the mm -hmm. nation. Po yeah. Child poverty, child, uh, well, our well-being number is 50. We're on the wrong side of every graph that measures the well-being of a child. Um, and so we were in bad shape before, and people are really in bad shape needing help. But we're able to give them a big, about, 25 pounds of fresh produce. They're so happy. They're so grateful. And, and for one or two days, they're going to have good, good food. And so um, that's not, you know, when you look at it, maybe spitting in the wind <laughs> yeah. means everything to that person. And it's the love and the care and the concern that goes with that box when you hand that to that person. 
that's that's what gets them through to the next day somebody cares yeah it's the hope it's the hope hope. absolutely it's hope yeah the most important i've always said the most important thing we give is a smile I used to say a smile and a hug, but we can't do the hug now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now we smile yeah. with our eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's what we've got the masks on that's and correct. our eyes are smiling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I know that, um, you know, you've had so many incredible opportunities throughout your long career. Uh, I know here, you know, kind of toward the end, you were even, um, I guess there was some like um, UN organization that flew you to Laredo to speak yeah. to their workers and, You've, um, you know, like we mentioned before, you've been in D.C., you've been in Mexico with different people, you've worked for the governor, you've had, um, I guess there was one point where you almost went to The Hague to present um, something you were working on in, um, yeah, in New Mexico. So, yeah, out of all your- I quit my job. I quit my job. Yeah. get to go to The Hague. (laughs) That's right. So, um, yeah, as you you look back, um, what is something you would say- to somebody who was considering, um, you know, wanting to help others. And even, I guess the question would be, what does it mean to you specifically to help others in hard times that they're experiencing? Um, it's the, and I know this sounds trite, but it is absolutely the greatest blessing that I have ever received. When people thank me for what I do, it's almost, it's embarrassing. I'm uncomfortable Mm. because I get so much. Yeah. I I would never not want to do this. I would have never wanted to miss this. I would have missed something phenomenal. Mm. You know, as we were looking at going to Venezuela and the, you know, several years of process and and preparation and stuff, all I could see was the sacrifice taking my my two children away from their culture away from their grandparents taking my grand their you know grandparents grandchildren away leaving my friends leaving a great job that i loved in the hospital that i loved all i saw was sacrifice looking from this side all i see is blessing Mm. well you certainly have that perspective and it's just encouraging to hear we all want to get to that point at your age to be able to say that and you're just such an inspiration and you work really hard um to help others and to pour yourself out for others and but i we are asking people in this series a couple different questions um one of them is are there any resources you would point people um to about helping others maybe it's books or authors or people you follow or music, or um, yeah, just any resources you would recommend to us about helping. Um, and of course, those I'm old, so those have changed. <laughs> those, you know, I grew up in the '60s, so honestly, something as simple as as um, protest songs and folk music, and, you know, yeah, listen to Peter, Paul, and Mary. Listen to the, you know, yeah. listen to some of those, and there's some powerful music and again I've already explained why that speaks to me so so music along the along the way as a child growing up in church hymns Mm. spoke to me uh and you know I I mean I took those really seriously and I still do you know yeah uh to let my light shine and to work for the night is coming and trust and obey and all of those it taught me 
really good principles. And I know we don't do hymns much anymore, but if you ever get a chance to just do that, even if you're just reading them or something, there's some really good inspiration in there. So that's, they've, music has always been a part. And now, of course, I love all kinds of music. So I love um, everything that's, you know, when it's coming out now, I love Hillsong and so all of it. Just turn the radio on and just listen to some good music that's going to inspire you. It doesn't necessarily have to be um religious music look for inspiration i think you know some artists speak out of their their own soul yeah so there's good thing there's as far as movies and and your brother and i were talking about this yesterday and trying to think through and i don't i'm gonna assume you don't remember this because he didn't um but back when you all were little before we went to venezuela and it was that time when we were going through the process the the series the tv series roots Mm. came out and that was mm-hmm. sequential nights and I mean it just stopped the nation as they watched wow. that and I grew up in the south and I've heard the stories of the lynching and I've heard the stories of slavery and suffering and a depression I'd heard that mm. but to watch that mm. impacted me in a way that I've never gotten over yeah and that, so Netflix or something try to watch that series and then Amistad oh yeah it's a good one yeah mm. And that was one, you know, later on, that was probably in the early 90s. And uh, I know the school, we, we, we were doing some stateside time in, in El Paso, Texas. And the school our, that Chad, your younger brother, went to, they shut down the school and bust the kids to the theater to watch that. It wow. was that important. That probably didn't happen everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but we're on the border. Yeah, that's <laughs> and right. So it's those, those situations of of. Uh, like that was spoke very deeply so look for look for things like that and so if I just looked at a an author whose writings have have just inspired me and continue to this day and all my life has been the writings of Martin Luther King's and the sermons of Martin Luther King if you mm. if you get a chance to I read the letter from the Birmingham jail letters from Birmingham jail every year mm, in January so yes to remind me of why I do what I do mm. Yeah. And then uh, anything you can read or see about uh, Mother Teresa's life, such an humble little woman. I think she was four foot ten. Nothing in the world would call beautiful. Uh, and, you know, God just gave her a deep call that was very controversial um, Yeah, and changed, changed the world, really. Yeah. And, I, you know, the day she stood on a box at the United Nations and spoke at the United Nations and took her little finger and put it in the face of world leaders and shamed them. Yeah. <laughs> and not doing what they should be doing. Mm. Nobody gets that kind of power from themselves. No, certainly not. Yeah. Um, and her, she's very, was very open with her struggles, a later book that she wrote on her own depression where she went through two or three years where she didn't know she believed in God. Wow. Uh, yeah. Even after all her years. But I think mm-hmm. that that probably was some burnout stuff. So anyway, you know, we, none of us go around with a halo on our head. No. So we all are just ordinary, ordinary, common people with a very extraordinary God. Yeah. Well, that that's so true. And as you talk about burnout, the other question we're asking in our series is because helping people in hard times can really take it out of us. And so what do you do for your day off or how do you rest to get a margin? So you won't be surprised when I say this. <laughs> My, uh, uh, I have, I have a little Shih Tzu and she, she, I always have a stress. I said, I'm going to go home and pet my dog, (laughs) but you know, just something that's just pure love and just 
Mm. The, all the cares of the world. She doesn't care what's going on. I can walk out the door to get the mail or I can be gone a week and I'm going to get the same greeting when I come back in. So, you know, yeah. reminding her that innocence is just pure love. Uh, I love to um, listen to music. If I'm usually my ideal, ideal day off would be around water, but I'm in 1500 miles from a, a beach or an ocean. <laughs> so that don't happen. But, All the sand, uh, but no water. Yeah, exactly. So now it's, you know, there's we're two hours from um, the mountains, beautiful mountains of New Mexico. So sometimes we'll get up and go on, you know, drive up there and spend the day or maybe spend the night and just get out of the heat and um, mm-hmm. enjoy some different, getting somewhere different. Some, if I just need a mini break, I'll drive down because I do live downtown. Uh, but you drive four or five miles out and we're in pecan orchards and where the trees you know, touch each other across the small little road. And just, I say, I'm going to go visit green or just visit, you know, dirt and (laughs) just to change, change that up and just to let that speak to me and let the nature when things, if all you see is the horror and the pain every day could just destroy you. Yeah. And in an ever-changing world full of hurt, there's an unchanging God. And every morning, I'm, I'm thankful to wake up. Now I'm thankful to wake up and not have COVID. Yeah. Um, but, you know, thank you that the sun comes up. Thank you that the oceans still ebb and flow. Thank you that mm. rain still come. That, that constance that reminds us of something far beyond this very short dot in eternity, which is our life. Uh, yeah. And um, if I can, I try to turn the phone off. Um, if things yeah. are really stressful, I'll watch silly movies like, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is a visit to my childhood. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I know all the songs and I know relatives of the, all the characters. So, just, and then we used to watch Three Amigos, just something, you know, something Make silly. You laugh. Yeah, just yeah, something silly that I don't, I, I don't want to, I want to laugh and I don't want to cry. I don't want yeah. to cry this movie. <laughs> I don't want right. to have to think about it. So just allowing myself permission to step away. Even Jesus stepped away. Right. Yep. And then, uh, you know, our, our pastors taught me a lot about this too, about burnout. And he, uh, he says, you know, if, if you're working and you're not in relationship, if you don't keep that relationship fresh with Christ that's where burnout comes, that you're just working, 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 but there's no joy coming back in. Yeah. And so that's important. And it's really, and that is not easy to do when you're working 16 to 20 hours a day and you're, yeah. you know, and your phone's constantly dinging and you know, every ding of that phone is a real need. Right. But yeah. um, we can't, we have to gas up. <laughs> you know, we, right. Yeah. We have to fill our tank. You cannot draw water from a dry well. Yep. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been just a joy to walk through your life and all the amazing things you've been able to see and do and um, just the way your life is so uniquely yours and so uniquely ordained and in the ways that God intended for it to be and in the way that even though you yourself um, grew up experiencing hard times that you were still in a community that gave back. And I think that that's one of the lessons you took from your childhood as I hear it. Yeah. Um, Cause even when we're experiencing hard times, which all of us are in various ways during COVID, 
we can still make a difference, even though we don't have it all figured out. Right. And if Mother right. Teresa even doubted, then certainly there's hope for all of us. Right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We can't wait well, till things you. are perfect. No, no, we certainly cannot. Well, thank you so much, Mom. It's just been an honor, a privilege, a pleasure to, to talk to you today. Oh, my I goodness. Love you. Well, I feel the same way. I'm all excited to be on your podcast. <laughs> I've already got people joining your podcast. <laughs> oh, thanks, Mom. <laughs> well, I love you. I'm proud of you. And I'll talk to you soon, Mom. All right, darling. Love you, too. Bye-bye. Isn't she just the best? Oh, man. Don't you just wish she was your mom? <laughs> she is such an inspiration to me. Um, just I'm so blessed to be Frida Adams' daughter, just to watch her from, you know, a front row seat in her life and the way she's blessed so many people in so many countries for so many decades now. And the way she just wants to always help others. She's just a helper by nature both with her actions and with her words and just the way that she is. And um, really, it can just also coordinate all kinds of situations to help others get on board. And um, she just has so many gifts and talents, just um, her wisdom from so many years of just faith and, um, and trust in God. And um, just also the way she has just not only uh, had, you know, these ideals that she lives by, but the way that she actually lives them out is she's more than just talk. She actually is very much action. And, and I don't mean just action in a broad sense, although that's true because she's obviously had a large platform in the last few years in particular with the jobs that she was doing, but also even on a small scale, she's very macro and micro, um, and her abilities to make an impact and also, just very relational in the process. She's a good listener. She's not a, necessarily a counselor by degree, but she's just one of those people that people tell her their problems because she listens and she cares. And um, so I think there's a side of her that is gifted at healing, both physically as a nurse, but also just with the healing posture of a friend who listens and, and cares and um, can give good advice. And um, so I'm blessed to be her daughter. My kids are blessed to be her grandkids. And she's that kind of grandma that texts them now that they all have phones, <laughs> checks up on them and they love talking with their nanny by text. And um, so, yeah, she's just amazing. And I'm so glad you guys got to meet her today on the podcast. You know, I hope that this sparked some more thoughts and conversations for you with your own family members, your own friends. Maybe you're thinking about someone today that you haven't reached out to for a long time and, you know, it's COVID and there's no, you know, reason to be on another Zoom call because we're all really Zoomed out, but maybe it's just a phone call or a text or some way to say, you know, that you care. We actually got this box of cookies today delivered to us from someone um, who is just really sweet in our church and just wanted to bless us with this box of gourmet cookies and it's just really thoughtful. So, you know, those little things can make a difference in the lives of the people that you care about. And so hopefully today, whether your, your aim is on the level of Mother Teresa or Frida Adams kind of impact or whether it's just, you know, something small that you're feeling led to do, I hope that you follow that prompting that you're feeling right now to just you know, step outside yourself and show some act of kindness, some word of affirmation, some 
prayerful thought towards someone and um and then if you know you feel led to do something even bigger to organize the way that frida adams is doing and on the border of the u.s and mexico to have you know binational efforts going that's amazing and that's huge and yet you don't have to start there because um if you heard her story it started small in her life and then as you kind of stretch that muscle of learning how to make a difference in small ways you can increase that and then others will come alongside and you'll inspire more people and and that's my hope and prayer for each of you is that as you're listening to these stories of my guests that i'm bringing on that it'll just spark some innovation some creativity some inspiration and these times right now where i don't know about you but my kids are going back to school online and it's super weird it's super doesn't feel like the big shebang that we're used to i drove my kids through a drive-through pickup for a plastic bag full of books they never even got out of the car had their masks on and it felt really kind of awkward and detached um but at this time of feeling awkward and detached and behind masks and behind screens and this seems like it's going to be the new normal for at least the next little while um i'm just hoping this podcast inspires you about ways you can connect and you can find community and you can make a difference in the lives of other people because I believe all of us have those opportunities every single day. So I hope this inspired you that Frida Adams life could give you some creative thoughts about um, the ways that you can spend your days and um, you are also not going to want to miss next week because I get to interview my dad, Dr. Ron Adams, who has many decades of experience making a difference in many countries as well. He has just so many fun stories to share. He, um, he's the oldest of four boys, so he kind of grew up at a young age just you know, leading and he's just such a leader and a mentor to so many people. He's a true inspiration to me and my biggest fan and so blessed to be his daughter and just to watch him and learn so much leadership lessons from him throughout my life. So you're in for a super big treat. He's um, been a pastor, a missionary, a chaplain, two different kinds of chaplains. Currently he's working as a hospice chaplain and that t- that whole experience during COVID is is really just so impactful and meaningful. So Please tune in next week to hear from Dr. Ron Adams. And I hope all of you are being different and making a difference all around the world this week. Bye.